Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Barbara B. was recorded on September 8th, 2022. Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. Hi, my name is Barbara B. I'm from Pleasant Hill, and I am an adult child of an alcoholic. I'm also a repeat offender for this meeting. Two years ago, about the same time, I was a speaker. And um, for that reason, I don't want to review my share from before. I'd like to have a different tack on it. I'll, I'll t- talk a little bit about my family history, but I'd like to kind of talk about being in the program for 13 years and how I keep learning stuff. Um, I, so many people I meet, they come in, they do kind of, a, they want to do a one and done. And I'm, I, I tried that too. And it doesn't work. I am a light. I go to my meetings every Monday night. I called one day at a time on Monday night. I can walk to it. It's four blocks away, except today it's 112. I'm just hoping PG does not cut my power off for you tonight. But um, that's that's what I'm going to work on is just tell you where I'm at from starting the steps to where I'm at now. So I hope that's helpful. Did you have something to share? Um, And it's a photo. And I usually don't do this, but often people do share photos. This is me in the middle. And I have eight brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest of nine kids. I'm 13 years old in this picture. It's probably August 71. And my sister sitting on my lap is um, about 10 months old. Our birthdays are two days apart. My mother had lupus growing up and uh, having this many kids was, and a lot of doctors thought it was ridiculous. My mother, now I'm a retired nurse and looking back at her postpartums, she always went into depression. And I think um, kids would be gone for three to six months, depending on how she was feeling. I never went anywhere because school was around the corner and I had to go to school. But um, my mom was sick well, most of my growing up. As soon as I started college, she went into remission from her lupus. My father was the alcoholic. And um, I, look, I, I look at this picture and I seem very happy. And I want you to know I was a pretty pissed off kid. And I was pissed off a lot. The sister that's in the top left-hand corner, at least that's for me, she's really not there. She has the original picture and she put herself in there. She was at day camp the day we took this picture. But we're all smiling. We're all having a good time. And I also want to point out my younger brother on the bottom, um, on the bottom right-hand side. Seamus uh, would have been 54 on Sunday and he died 10 years ago from the disease of alcoholism. So um, that's me family. So I'll stop sharing that and go on with my share here. Um, How I got introduced to ACA was somebody gave me the book by Claudia Black, It'll Never Happen to Me. And I sat down and I read the book cover to cover and I related to it, but I did not run to a meeting. I waited a few months and I started going and that would be in probably 1986. Back then we didn't have any textbooks. We had, it was kind of going off the AA program I don't remember reading Tony A. Steps, but our books are things that you were reading were Claudia Black's book, Women Who's uh, uh, Smart Women, Foolish Choices. And um, oh, I just had the name and it just left my, it doesn't matter. But those were the kind of books we were reading and some psychologists that were looking at ACA. So we didn't have that kind of formality that we have now. I went to those meetings every Friday 
for about two years. And I got a lot out of it. You know, going to a meeting every day or every week, there's something to do, but nobody was pushing the steps or, and I wasn't seeming to be that interested either. I really enjoyed being at the meeting. And most of the time, all I did was cry. I'd start talking and start crying. And are you done, Barbara? And I'd say yes and go on. Uh, I did come out of that meeting learning a few things, but no step work. I did a geographical and um, in 2009, I was having a relationship problem. And I went to see a therapist. I worked at a medical center and it was the EAP program, employee assistant program. I knew the woman and I, you know, I had great respect for her. And anyway, she knew my history and we sat there and talked and she goes, you know, you need to go back to ACA and you need to do service. And I was so disappointed. I thought, you know, I did that too. I did that back in the eighties. Why am I doing this now? So I did, I did go back. And again, I just showed up for the meetings. For some reason it was on a Friday night. And I would go, and it was the Al-Anon ACA meeting. And we covered, we talked about the steps. We talked about tradition, but I didn't see anybody really doing the work. There was one gentleman in there, though. Every week, he, couldn't, he would tell us where he was at with the steps. And sometimes I thought he was looking at me, you know, saying, you should do the steps. But I was thinking, you know what? That's nice. I'm glad that works for him, but that's not for me. I stopped going to that meeting, went to another meeting. And then finally, about two years into this, I found the Big Red Book meeting that was local here. And I go, and there's 50 people in the room, and they start reading the script, and they start reading from the Red Book, and I was sold. I was, I got up, bought a book, bought a yellow book. I was ready to do the steps. I don't know what the click was there. I don't know what made me want to do it. Secretary was very helpful, found me somebody to work with, who happened to be a nurse and also a therapist, and we met weekly and started doing the yellow book. And when we finished the third step, she was ready to go back to the first step. She wasn't ready to move on to four. And that was not my personality. I'm, I'm trying to get something done here. And um, I had to find somebody to be a sponsor. And 13 years ago, it's just as hard to find a sponsor as it is today. And I found somebody in the Al-Anon program. So when I showed her the yellow book, she was not familiar with it at all, but she was willing to help me with it. And she did. And I finished the steps. Once I finished the steps, I was in a service position as being the secretary for this meeting. And I was getting hounded all the time. Could you be my sponsor? Could you be my sponsor? Working at the medical center more than 40 hours a week and, and working on myself. I just couldn't be everybody's sponsor. But when I finished that service commitment, I did start a co-sponsor group. And I had 10 ladies that came to the meeting and they ranged from college graduate or college student, I should say, to rocket scientist. Great, great, great experiences. And Doing the steps that way was just another level of recovery and healing that is, is, was worth it, was definitely worth it. And from there, the Monday night meeting started that we met on Monday. So we finished with eight ladies in nine months, we finished the steps. And then I started doing some sponsors. So, you know, when you go to the meetings, you do get something out of it. But I also wanted to, I always wanted to have a meeting that I could say I've been to a long time. I used to go to these AA speaker meetings and there'd be somebody get up there. Hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. And I've been going to this meeting for 25 years. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, God, that'd be so cool to be going to a meeting for 25 years. Well, I've been going to this meeting for eight years. So that's how long it's been started. But longevity, I still go to the meetings. I, I, it's, it's unbelievable how much I hear there. And then I also get reinforcement back when somebody comes back to me and says, God, that was so helpful what you said last week. I, I really like that. The other part of it is though, when you you start the meeting and it's eight years old, it, it can come across 
or I work so hard so it doesn't come across as my meeting. It's not, not my meeting. Um, and I, I pull back from rotation. I do rotation of service or not service at all in the, you know, in the immediate piece of it. But I, I do come to the business meetings with history. I can, you know, an, an example would be somebody last month wrote to me. I'm the contact person for the meeting. They wanted to know if they could bring their one-year-old to the meeting. And I know five years ago, this meeting had decided not to do that. Well, we've had COVID. We are not at the hospital. There's a whole lot of different things that's going on. But I brought it back to the business meeting on the end of August and the group discussed it again. And it's not my meeting. It's not my role. It was something that came up. And so I, I seem to be very uh, sensitive to that. I want to, people to know that even there's been decisions made at that meeting that are not my that not to, you know, that wouldn't be the way I did it, but I go with the group consensus. And I just love that. I love that. And I think it makes everybody feel more safe. And it definitely make, gets me off the hook. I'm tired of taking care of everybody. Um, I'm looking at some notes here when I look down. So I, I talked to you about my experience with um, doing the, uh, the steps. And um, to get in a little more detail, you know, doing them with the fellow traveler was okay. I I, I, it, I was just so disappointed when she wasn't going to continue. But I have to tell you, doing it one-on-one -on -one for me, somebody who's the oldest of nine kids, I appreciated the attention. I appreciated somebody just looking at me, focusing on me. But the co-sponsor group, like I said before, brought it to another level. And it's, it's so cool that we have these opportunities to do the steps so many different ways. The real The real thing for me was, the level of recovery after doing the steps by myself with the co-sponsor group and then doing it with sponsees and working with them. The, the growth is unbelievable. I mean, it, you learn, you learn things all the time. I, I find it amazing how many people are afraid to be a sponsor or be a fellow traveler. And I would really encourage people to be a fellow traveler. All you have to do is write down the answer to the question and share it with somebody, and then they share it back with you. Uh, so many people go, oh, I don't have all the answers. I even hear this with service for being the secretary. I can't be the secretary. I don't know all the answers. And um, I, I keep pushing that because I'm still being pretty strict on how much service I'm doing. I, I, I average about, I would say, 12 to 14 hours a week of service. So I'm really cautious on how much more I'm taking on. During COVID, I had a sponsee every day of the week. It was Groundhog Day. It gave me something to look forward to. But now that things are in a more healthy state, I've kind of pulled back on that. And um, I still get involved with different um, commitments outside of my home group. Um, I, uh, I, you know, this ACA is so unique. And maybe it's not. I, I've only done ACA. I've done other 12-step programs. But I've seen people come into our program from other 12-step programs. And I appreciate them taking care of whatever it is, AA, NA, uh, GA, CODA, whatever it is. And, but I have always understood that the ACA program is kind of graduate work. And I, I've had so many people uh, come that from other 12-step programs wanting me to sponsor them. And they're really... They, unless they're really engaged to do it, they don't understand why they're having to do it again. Or they just decide I'm not doing the steps because I've already done the steps in another program. And I would encourage those, if that's anybody in this audience, I would encourage you to really look at the ACA steps. I had somebody call me, I think it was earlier this summer. She wanted to do a fourth step with me. And I have known her for over 10 years, off and on coming to meetings. 
And uh, I go, who did you do the ACA steps with? And she goes, oh, I've never done them. I go, well, I'm not willing to do a fourth step with you. You should do the fourth step with whoever you did the, your program with. And I think she was a little discouraged, but the, I, I, I want people to understand that ACA is really important. I think ACA is so grounding. I think ACA is so healing. And I think ACA is so different. We're, we, we have a special, I mean, we've been around for over 40 years and we are special. We have a way of doing things. Another thing has come up regarding recovery. I'm working on a new region here on the Western states and we're coming up with the uh, bylaws. How boring is that bylaws? And, but in each officer, we're talking about what the recovery should look like. How many years should they have in recovery to be a chair, a secretary and stuff like that. And the discussion for our meeting that's coming up is going to be, should the recovery, does the recovery have to be an ACA? And I feel real strongly that it should. I think there's a difference between the other recoveries. And um, if those are, if you come to our meeting from another program, I would really encourage you to tr try our steps. I think they'll, they'll give you a level of healing that you, you will increase, emphasize, embrace what you've already had and take you to a higher level. I just had another thought, but it went away. I'm not going to harbor on that anymore. Okay. So what have I learned from the steps? So my spiritual awakening had to be with self-love. I did not love myself. I didn't have time to love myself. I was too busy taking care of everybody else. I was, I'm, you know, people will tell you I'm very organized. I'm, I didn't know what hypervigilance was until I read about it in this book, but I, I'm definitely somebody who does algorithms. Not only am I a nurse that goes through CPR and all these other emergencies we might have in a medical center, I can come up with six different ways of getting something done. If it goes this way, we'll do this. And I mean, my head is spinning. I had a, um, I had a, a boss that told me, she told another, her, her boss, that her boss wasn't too keen on me. She goes, Barbara's so negative. And she goes, no, she's not really. She just has foresight. And that's just how I was with hypervigilance. My, that was what she considered foresight. I thought foresight was very, um, very positive thing to say about me. But as I get in this program and start doing this work 20 years later, I'm going, oh, that's what that was about. I'm just, just trying to make sure everything goes perfect. And I have some sight on that kind of thing. But the self-love piece for me was I wanted romance in my life and I could, I did it every way wrong. And I repeated things. And then I went into a period where I was just relationship anorexia. I, can, I just can't do it. And reading this material and finally understanding that self-love, how can I have somebody love me if I don't love myself? And when I started learning that and start doing the exercises, like they're in chapter eight about the mirror exercise, I looked at that mirror and I would tell myself, love you, Barbara. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, look at you. Your, your hair looks great. Your eyes look good. Oh, you're, you had a nice smile today. I started it and didn't believe a word. This took months. It took months. It took years to get to where I was at, but it took me months to find the self-love. And I finally got it. And it was unbelievable. It was like a light switch. I really thought that somebody was going to hit me with a, you know, a wand and say, you're it, Barbara, you got it. But it really, <laughs> it was work. It was work. And um, the self-love was so evident that I didn't have before taking care of me, making me number one for once, not everybody else. Um, I wish there was a camera on the wall when I did step one and I was reading about how I should mind my own business. That was remarkable. I thought I was so good at helping people. I had so much advice for people. Um, I had good advice and yet most people didn't go with anything I said. 
but it was, uh, that was a really, that I really was perplexed by that, that I had been doing, telling people what to do and being in everybody's business. And I catch myself today doing that. I was in the pool for a water aerobics class and I'm 64, I'll be 65 next month. And these ladies are talking about Medicare. And I was thinking, well, maybe I should go over there and join the conversation. These were ladies that knew each other. I didn't know them. And I had to hold myself back. No, this is none of your business. Let them have their own little discussion about Medicare. You don't need to get into it. But that's who I was. I would be somebody come into a room and talk to put their, you know, look directly at somebody and say, do you know where the bathroom is? And I'd be in the back of the room. Going, oh, the bathroom's over just down the hall on your right. I mean, I would be the one that just, just, I was just, I just didn't mind my own business. So I have learned to stay in my lane and I constantly remind myself to stay in my lane. So that's another one of my learnings. You know, when I was talking about how, how I did ACA back in the eighties and we didn't have any material literature or anything like that, but I did learn something then that I have carried on. And I've just, I, I use constantly, I'll give you an example soon, but it's, if I make a decision that's selfish, it's probably the right decision. I don't know where that came from. I don't know how I got that message, but I got that in my first two years doing ACA back in the 80s. And I carried that along. I um, recently had, um, there's an older lady in my community who I, I felt was so close to elder abuse during COVID, the way things were handling for her. And I kind of made an effort to reach out. She's not the nicest person. She's sarcastic as hell. But I, uh, once she was feeling a little bit more comfortable and our meetings started meeting in person, she I would go pick her up. And believe me, it would take me a half hour to get to her with traffic and then a half hour to go to the meeting and then taking her back home. I mean, it was a service commitment. And um, sometimes she just annoyed the hell out of me. And I kept telling myself, Barbara, if you're doing this, make sure you're doing this for love. This service has to become from love. And anyway, she's now um, in an assistant living and I was kind of reaching out with her. Our meetings don't work with her schedule of the assistant living. So um, I'm not taking her to meetings anymore. But I had a conversation with her a couple of weeks ago that was so sarcastic. And all I was asking was how she was doing. I said, you know what? It's time to cut her off. Yeah, it's just time to cut her off. So that's an example. This is somebody I've known for the whole 13 years I've been in the program. And it's just time to cut her off. I don't need to take care of her. Um, coming from love. I, you know, you get these critical conversations, crucial conversations where you have to say something to somebody. And what I've learned in this program is that if I come from love, I'm not responsible for the other person's reaction. And I just had a situation like that happen for me with my partner. We've been together, it'll be 10 years next month. And I was triggered last week. I was triggered and I, um, I told him what was, you know, I told him that something's going on right here. And I called my sponsor. I called another fellow traveler. I was recommended to do some non-dominant handwriting. I did that and I sorted out my feelings. And so I, you know, instead of taking weeks and months to figure out what the hell's going on, I figured it out pretty much in 24 hours. And I went back to my partner and I told him some stuff that was probably hard for him to hear. And yet I was coming from love. And um, he just asked me today, he goes, you know, about that confrontation we had last week. And I had to say, it wasn't a confrontation. I just was triggered and I was sharing my feelings. And he goes, so how did you feel? And so, you know, we went on, the details aren't important, but 
he walked away from me and I go, you know what? I'm not responsible for this. And I, you know, I telling you three years ago, I would have grinded on this. I would figure out how to bring it up again. I didn't feel like it was confrontation. Well, you know what? It's not about me having to be right all the time. I don't have to straighten people out. I need to come from love, be authentic, be honest, and people are going to react the way they react. But what am I doing? I'm taking care of myself. Um, boundaries. People used to tell me, gosh, Barbara, you have such great boundaries. And uh, when I started learning what boundaries were, I really didn't know what boundaries were. I, um, I, When I reflect back on it now, I think what was going on back in my early years, even early time in, in ACA, was my black and white thinking from my Catholic upbringing. You know, and if the other piece of it was probably, I just told people off, you know, and I think some people thought, well, she's so strong. She's got boundaries. I, it was, a, you know, if anything, it was verbally abusive. It wasn't boundaries. Um, I, I just, I, I, I was struggling with people telling me I had such boundaries because I felt like I was such a mess, but I found, found now that I know what the word no means. I want to take care of myself. I work so hard not to be in other people's business. I have to tell you that retiring early was a good thing for me. I, uh, I, I used this program in the work setting and I made suggestions instead of telling people what to do. My last job, I was a project manager. And so I was working with groups trying to move them from step A to B, you know, start to the finished product. And uh, I learned to sit on my hands. And when something came up, I'd say, um, well, I suggest we do it this way. I suggest we do it that way. And this lady came up to me about three months into this. And she's like, you know, Barbara, you make a lot of suggestions. <laughs> I was thinking, yes, I'm doing it right. But work was a really hard. That was, that was, I just used to get wrapped up. And it was just, that was the hardest part. I think I was doing better with relationships and friendships and my family. But work was the hardest thing to work, bring this program to the work setting. Um, in the way of relationships, I, um, I think if I was 20 when Facebook came about, I'd be the person with a thousand friends because I worked so hard to keep everybody I ever met in my circle, where they were, contacting them. And I've done a number of purges in my life. Uh, when I was doing ACA back in the 80s, I did a big purge. And that, usually, that probably mostly had to do with me stopping to drink. I got sober in ACA then. I was going for a year and didn't understand you're supposed to do this sober. And when I did that, a lot of people, you know, you just people move. And I've had a couple of purges since, but um, I've learned that as this program grows, even though I have this childhood friend that I've known since kindergarten, I lent her money probably 20 years ago and um, she has yet to pay me back. And it's taken me three years ago or so to go, you know, well, where's the integrity there? She knows she owes me this money. And I've, you know, I just, I've just moved, I'm not working. And the other part of it, she hasn't paid me back, but it's me contacting her. And that's what I find with some of the, all these people I know that I was the one holding the relationship together. I was the one trying to see them. I was the one trying to do this. I didn't feel it coming back. And I learned what a friend is. A friend is just as concerned about me as I am about them. And uh, so my number of a thousand wannabes on Facebook is down to probably 10. And it's amazing to me how many of my friends are just in ACA. I don't have a lot of outside friends. I have a few childhood friends. I obviously have my family, but uh, that has, uh, that was a lot of work keeping that together. 
but that was interesting how I, the, these purges and I just want to be around people that are healthy. Uh, I did the laundry list book with a young lady and she mentioned three people in her life that she knew from kids. And as we're doing the laundry list book, she goes, I'm not willing to give up these, this friendship as sick as it was, as dysfunctional it was, she was holding on to it. You know, that that's, that's okay. That's where she's at with the recovery. She'll get where she needs to be. And if it's working for her, who am I to say anything different? Um, work, you know, that workplace uh, laundry list in the book is, uh, is scary. <laughs> um, it's just so true. And uh, I thought everybody came to ACA because of relationship problems. And I remember finding it, reading the laundry list book and a laundry list, uh, workplace laundry list. And I was like, going, well, nobody comes here because of work. And just as I say that to myself, the next week, this girl sitting next to me in my Monday night meeting going, well, you know what brought me to ACA was my work relationships. <laughs> just like, going, okay, it, every, it, everybody gets here on whatever path they go. It's just not all romance like myself. But I just want to say to people who especially are young and in a work situation, these people you're not happy with, you're not going to remember their names. You're not going to remember what you're arguing about. And um, the ones that you really got along with and had some friends, you'll, you'll remember their names. But for me, I used to grind. I would go to work and I would be pissed off. I'd come home and I would continue to be pissed off. I would bring my work home. I made work my number one thing in my life between the 80s and getting back here to 2009, getting back into ACA. I mean, my mother had cancer and she needed radiation treatments. And I was like, okay, mom, I have no problem taking you to the radiation, but it has to be at eight in the morning because I have to go to work. Well, my mother couldn't do eight o'clock in the morning. She couldn't really get started till 12 o'clock. So my youngest sister who was in college would go to her classes in the morning and take my mother at 2 p.m. Then my mother got sick, she was actually dying. I was actually able to walk away from the job and spend the last week with her. I felt so bad for my younger sister because she was still living at home and taking care of my mom. And she goes, you know what, Barbara, I felt bad for the rest of you guys because you weren't living with her and able to help. What a great, you know, I mean, that was such a nice thing to say, but I'll tell you when my dad got sick, I called him up. I'm not coming to work. My dad's sick and I'll get there. I'll get back when I can. None of this putting work ahead of my family and things like that. I, I learned to stop doing that. And, uh, I took so many things personally at work. It was just an attack on me. And it just shows you that where my health was, my emotional sobriety wasn't quite there yet. I, I know that today, if I was in these work settings, things would be a lot different for me. I would I would probably go with the flow a little bit more and quit taking things so personally. And, and number one, not always having to be right. Um, my family, um, I don't have to fix things anymore. And I don't have to call them out. And I always talked about being right. Being the oldest of nine kids, uh, you know, they looked at they looked at me. They looked up to me. They they wanted my help. Um, there was times where my mom would be in the hospital for weeks and I would be cooking and things like that. I, I didn't know how much responsibility I had until I look back at it now. I was sharing a story recently about how I was eight years old. I lived in Oakland, California. And uh, this is back in the 60s. And um, I was going to go to San Francisco to see my aunt who lived in Eureka. That's three buses for me to catch. I was eight years old. I had my little overnight bag and I go down to East 14th and I get on the bus and the bus driver's looking at this eight-year-old girl going to San Francisco. 
And he put his hand over the thing and he goes, where are you going, little girl? And I said, I'm going to San Francisco. And I put my dime in and I sat behind him. I went to San Francisco. Then I got on a streetcar and went out to the Castro. Then I caught the bus for Eureka. I went to my aunt's house. Eight years old. Eight years old. How many eight-year-olds, you know, do that? And this is just, this is, this is how much responsibility I had. So I felt like I was responsible for always fixing things up. My brother who died uh, 10 years ago uh, from alcoholism. I, I was given great advice in his last year, Barbara, you can't be a sponsor. But there was times where I really wished I could have helped him out more. And he did look at me for, my mom had died, my mother died in 94 and he was a newlywed. And so he was really looking at me sometimes to help him. I was the matriarch, but that responsibility now is, is kind of getting, it's diffused. It's not kind of, it's diffused. I mean, if they ask me for, you know, some help, I'll give it to them. I want to be available to them. But I, I look back at it. Sometimes I just interjected myself into the problem, equation, whatever you want to call it. So that's how I've done with my, my family. And with my partner, when we started dating, uh, even when he, well, I think it was just when he started dating, he would say to me, are you giving me unsolicited advice? And I'd go, what? I never heard of that phrase. Well, that's from men's or from Mars and women are from Venus. And um, it made me take back. He's obviously in some recovery. And uh, I kept doing it. I, I, it took me a while to learn with him to quit giving unsolicited advice. I just um, don't have all the answers. I don't need to have all the answers. But it was just so hard for me to learn that. It was hard to give up. And you know what happens when you give it up? You have more time. You have more time for doing other things that you really like doing. That's what I've learned. We travel a lot now, and um, I don't give him advice. Unless saves our marriage. <laughs> saves it. Um, I don't, I'll get ready to yeah, kind of wrap things up a little bit. I, um, I think service is so important in recovery. And uh, one of the things, it's, it says it in the red book, I'm not... I'm going to paraphrase it because I like the way I said it better. And basically, you can't keep what you got if you don't share what you have. And my experience with service has been always so positive. Um, you, you take on a job at a home group that gets you to keep coming to the meeting. You know, um, treasure was uh, my first experience because, you know, collecting money every week. I need to count the money. I actually like math. It was something to do. I have found um, that. Sometimes the new folks that come to meetings, oh, look, it's like fresh meat. Let's get them to do something. And uh, I had an experience, this was before COVID, and this gentleman had come to five meetings and the secretary, I guess he wanted to do some service. And the secretary goes, well, talk to Barbara about being an intergroup rep. So he comes to me and talks to me. He goes, you know, I was just asked to talk to you about being an intergroup rep. Can you tell me what it's about? And I said, how many meetings have you gone to? And he says, five. I go, you know, I'm going to suggest you kind of back off a little bit for service, give yourself another month or so, and then find something that you can do in this meeting and uh, just get yourself a little more acclimated to the program. And I would suggest that to all newbies. I, I, we, we want people to uh, do service, but we also want them to take care of themselves. And it's really explained well in the Red Book that some of these new people that show up and start doing service, it's just repeating their laundry list traits. They're taking care of everybody else and not working on themselves. And so, um, but I do see people that sit back 
And believe me, I was it in the beginning. I remember when I came back in 2009, she started asking me to do service. I'm not doing service. I'm too busy taking care of everything as it is. I need I need to take a break. I just want to go to a meeting, listen to good stuff and go home. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You're, you keep what you got. You share what you have. So um, I... I've done home group stuff. And if you've done, done great with your home group, then work on your inner group. Inner groups need help too. And there's a struggle there. There's a lot of work to be done. I know we're still in this. I mean, my meeting's in person right now. We've been in person for over a year, Memorial Day. But some folks are still not there. They're still doing the Zoom. And uh, I, I'm looking so forward to more in-person in, in meetings, speaker meetings locally because it helps with fellowship. People are struggling to meet people to do um, sponsorship, just fellow travelers and going to other meetings on Zoom and stuff like that. Well, you can do it, but it's just, I, my personal is in person. Um, and like I said, I, I was trying to start a region too. There's, there's committee work to do at WSO, but start at your home group. If you've done your home group, then move up. But I really would encourage service and sponsorship is service. Being a fellow traveler is being of service. And um, I don't really have much more after that. I want to, I hope something I said resonates with you. And it's such an honor to be asked to come back, to be a repeat offender to this event. And uh, thank you for your time. Peace.